0: Alright, it's 6.45. Good morning and welcome to Systematic Theology. Are you happy to be here this morning? Amen. It's early. God bless you. I do want to say hello to those that are uh, watching us through live stream. God bless you. We're delighted, thrilled uh, that you're going to study uh, theology and study God's Word with us over the next 20 weeks. And so wherever you may be, uh, from Colorado to Haiti, God bless you. And we're thrilled that that you're watching us. Okay, guys. Um, today, just a couple of housekeeping um, items before we um, before we get right into the first uh, the first doctrine is we do have an outline for you, and uh, we'll try to provide one of these every week so that at least you can have um, a place there to t- take some notes. This is the um, the, the textbook for the class, uh, Christian Beliefs. Some of you have ordered it; it has not come in yet, but it's on its way. Okay, so uh, sometime. At least by the first of next week, Kathy Jones tells me uh, that you, you should be able to pick up your, your copy, okay? And I know there's only like three or four pages a session, but have no fear, there is more. There is more. If you <laughs> this is my book. This is my textbook. This, you, you get the smaller version, but if you, if, you want, um, if you want the real deal, there it is. This is Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, and this is the condensed version. I mean, I'm getting a workout just holding this thing up. It is really, really heavy. Some of you have this. It is the best systematic theology uh, textbook that, that I've ever read. You said, well, how many of you read? I've read a few. I love this kind of stuff. You said, man, you're strange. Who, who likes studying and reading systematic theology? I, I do. I love it because Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and what? All your mind. And so that's what we want to do. We want to honor God, worship God with our minds, uh, study the great doctrines of the faith. And by the way, um, if you miss a week, you say, well, I'm, I'm not going to be here till week three or whatever. Well, you can go to the table of contents because I'm going to follow completely uh, what Dr. Grudem follows. Uh, for example, today will be an overview of systematic theology. Then we'll go right into what's called bibliology, the study of the Bible. And then next week is what is God like. And then the third week is the Trinity Sun is that good stuff. The, the Trinity, and then we go all the way through uh, fall and spring. And um, like I said, I am I'm excited. I got up even before my alarm clock went off this morning, so you know, you know I'm I'm excited. Um, I want to share just a just a couple things uh, with you, some housekeeping things, and just this, these are the kind of things I always share before I teach a class. So I'm not going to treat you you guys any differently. Just some of the ground rules in in, in our class today, okay? First objective, and it is this, knowledge is secondary, okay? Uh, knowledge, Scripture says, alone puffs up. Remember that? And Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians 8 1 says, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. So the purpose of our class would be to get to know God better so we can serve him more faithfully and witness for him more effectively. And so I don't want it to be just an affair of the head. I want it to be an affair of the head and the heart, uh, and the hands, okay? Technically, that's called orthodoxy an affair of the head. Uh, orthopraxy is we use our hands, and ontology, it's, it's our heart. And that's the most important thing. I always share the first day of class with students. Uh, it doesn't matter as much how much you know or even what you do. What matters is who you are. And I believe by studying God's Word and studying the great doctrines of the past, Guys, I'm telling you, it will change your life. It'll transform you more into the image of Christ. You will begin to think biblically. You will begin to think biblically, even as people respond to you and as they, especially as they ask you, um, ask you questions. I love the fact what we're doing fits perfectly with our radiant church motif. Anybody else? Anybody remember the radiant church? We are going, brother. I'm just trying to wake up. I can't remember anything right now. I don't even know who I am. Worship God uh, upwardly with passion, day by day. Worship Him inwardly through discipleship, and that's really what this is, because this is a very heady experience, all right, because it's, it's going to be heady, it's going to be cerebral, it's going to be technical at times, but that's okay, that's not our end game, but that is important to learn, because I really want you to learn. I want at the end of these 20 weeks that you can say, you know, I learned many things that I did not know, okay, that's, that's important, but, and of course, our, our third is outward in evangelism and missions, so it fits perfectly within our radiant church. If you noticed, I started at 6:45. We're going to start at 6:45. We're going to honor your time, okay? So I just want, if you can, get here, you know, 6:30. Grab a cup of coffee, run to the rest. What you have to do because um, we, I really want to be sensitive to your time. Here, here's our goal. We go from 6:45 to 7:30, and it's pretty much just me talking, okay? 6:45 to 7:30, and uh, and I may stop occasionally and say are y'all okay, are you with me on that, and you're like, whoa, you just totally lost me on that point, would you say that again, okay, I will, but at 7.30, I'm going to stick around for like 15 minutes, we're just going to do Q&A, just question and answers, okay, some of you at 7.30 need to leave, and I I get that, because you got to get on Mopac and get on downtown, you know, go wherever you need to go, and that's, uh, that's cool, I gotta be at work like you. I mean, I'm. I'll be at work at eight o'clock. I've got lots, lots of things to do, just like you do. And so, um, but here, here's the ground rules. All right, we're all gonna be sweet in class. All right, uh, if you, you can't be upset, you can't get mean spirited. You can't get angry. You say, "Well, I can't believe you believe that. I've never heard anybody believe in that." And and I'm gonna challenge you on that. No, you're not. I'm not gonna let you challenge me on it. I can say, hey, I'll talk to you privately. Uh, afterward, and you and I can dialogue, and we can talk about it. There was a guy I had in class when I taught at Southeastern Seminary. Oh, my word. He was trouble, kind of like Dr. Ryan here. He was trouble. I mean, I'm telling you. And he would just argue with me and debate with me, and I made a statement. I said, your soteriology will determine your missiology. He went, that's right, and that's why I'm a Calvinist, and Calvinism believes basically cuts the nerve of, of evangelism and missions if you push calvinism to a place it shouldn't go and i said well i disagree oh he got mad at me got angry and i said hold on time out so after class i said charlie you can't do that you can't rebuke me and confront me in the class and he says okay he says you know i shouldn't do that then he went to the president and reported me to the seminary <laughs> like man and so anyhow he and i ended up being uh, good buddies but uh, anyhow we're all got to be sweet if we disagree we disagree um uh, agreeably, all right? All right, so I've gone through the, uh, the textbook with you, and um, the, the, one of the reasons I, I chose Grudem, it's kind of a selfish reason, uh, I've read, like I said, uh, two or three others, but Grudem does such a good job of breaking things down, and here's what I like about him. He will tell you what he believes. You say, well, why is that important? Well, I can give you theories out you know, millions of theories, but then you'd walk away, you're going, well, what about Brother Danny? I wonder what he really believes about that. Well, I'm going to do what Grudem did. I'm going to tell you what, what I believe. And some of you going to agree with it. Some of you are not going to agree with it. And And that, that is okay, all right? Because there are going to be some really... In fact, in reading Grudem, I've read 500 pages. I'm through lecture 8. I finished lecture 8 on sin yesterday. Whew! I'm ahead of y'all, okay? I'm just, I'm just like, staying just a little bit ahead of you. And there are some things he believes about infants that I just, I just don't believe. And there's some, um, there, there's some other things in there that, uh, that I'm like, oh, I don't know that I agree with that. And that's okay, okay? He's, he's big enough to handle our disagreement. You're big enough to handle dis- disagreeing with me, and that's fine. But the thing I like about him, though, is he really will break it down. Somebody said this one time. They said, if you shoot over people's head, the only thing you demonstrate is you're a poor shot, okay? <laughs> and, so, and so we... You know, if I'm up here waxing eloquent on some word or whatever, and you're like, man, I don't even know what that means. And then you say, what, what does that mean? What does that word mean? And I'll say, okay, great. You're probably going to ask me lots of questions I don't know the answer to. And I'm okay with that. Too. I used to tell my students in seminary, so you can ask me anything you want to. And God really helps me, and I'm able to answer a lot of questions. And a lot of times I'm not. But that's fine. I like to go research and find out what I don't know. All right, here we go. So we're going to begin with what is systematic theology? What what is systematic theology? Well, there there are really two major definitions as to what is uh, the discipline of systematic theology. Grudem believes that systematic theology is the study that answers the question, what does the Bible teach us today about any given topic? So Grudem says systematic theology is purely what does the Bible say about Man, what does the Bible say about sin? What does the Bible say about God? I'm telling you guys, half of this book is Bible. He has quoted so many scriptures, and he has brought some light to me that I didn't even understand. I had no idea what that meant, and he is very much a good teacher. And so he is very heavily focused on what does the Bible say about the doctrine. That's one stream of systematic theology. The other stream goes like this. True... What does the Bible say about the doctrine? But what does theologian or historian or Doctor So and So say about it? And you systematize it. You bring them together. Okay, that's Doctor James Leo Garrett. He was my systematic theology professor uh, at Southwestern Seminary. Uh, Went to Baylor, went to Princeton, then got his PhD at Harvard, and he. I'll tell you, this guy, he was brilliant. And he would say, yes, what does the Bible say about that? But we really also need to see what John Calvin said about it or what Bernard Ram said about it. And so he would bring the two together in a system, all right? So those are two uh, different, but they're pretty pretty similar. Now, Grudem, when he says, I'm just going to focus on Scripture, and 90% of the time he will, but occasionally he will say, now, here's the way so-and-so approaches it. But th- i tell you the thing I just admire about him more than anything is how biblical he is, how focused on what does the what does the Scripture say. So what are the benefits of, of taking a systematic theology class? Some of you are going, yeah, right, what in the world am I doing here at 645? Why would anybody in their right minds do this? Well, there's three reasons. Number one, this study will help some of you overcome some bad doctrine. Bad theology, it creeps into our minds and our hearts, things that we believe because somebody told us, but it's contrary to Scripture, and so this will help you improve your theology, help you know God better, know His Word better, overcome bad theology. Number two, it will help you make better decisions on new questions over doctrine that will arise, okay? It'll help you make better decisions on new questions over doctrines that will arise. You will be able to state, then demonstrate what the bible says about that? let me give you an example a couple of months ago you know with all the stuff was going on down at the capitol and um you know with the pro-life movement and I, I've, I've never been down to the capitol so many times and never gotten so many debates and i'm not a, really a debating kind of person I, i'm just you know I, there's a real part of me that's an introvert and just like being by myself well I mean, we just kind of got thrown into the fray that one day. And I found myself standing before about 300 very rabid orange shirt people who disagree with with most of us in here about what we believe about life and so forth. And so I found myself at the front of this room. And all these people, and my wife, she was sharing with this group, and some of our other folks from Great Hills were sharing. And this lady comes and grabs me by my arm. I thought, oh, heavens, what in this? What is she doing? She goes, come with me. You Come with me. She goes, and she stood me in front of this lady, and she said, This guy knows the Bible. He knows everything in the Bible. You ask him about your question. I was like, Oh, my word. I, said, I was thinking, What in the world is she going to ask me? She asked me the question. I said, Psalm 139 says, and I was able to show her the Scripture. And, and the lady who was kind of upset, she goes, well, I had never seen that before. And she goes, Psalm 139 what? And I, I gave her the verses. She opened it up on her phone. And so... It was, a, it was a cool moment because I was prepared, able to give a defense. And you'll find as you study theology and you study Scripture, God will prepare you for those moments of people that he's, that he's planning for you to speak to. Okay, Help us overcome bad theology, prepares us to answer questions. And number three, oh, I like this one. Systematic theology will help us grow in Christ. It'll help us in our relationship with Christ. Uh, Grudem says, and I quote, The more we know about God, about his word, and about his relationship to the world and mankind... The better we can trust him, the more fully we can praise him, and the more readily we can obey him. I love that's a great holistic definition of why we do what we do. Let me me say it one more time. The more we know God and his word and his relationship to the world and mankind, we'll be better able to trust him more, praise him more, and uh, more readily to obey him. Um, If you were to buy this big book, you would notice that My lectures come pretty much from this book, okay? I have eight pages of typed uh, notes. I'm I'm up to 50. And so today, my goal is to cover these eight pages of notes. And it's really distilled from his teachings with some application and with some cross-referencing from other books and so forth. And so I want to say that because... Um, as I make this available, and I, and I even make my manuscript available, people will go, wow, you sure were dependent on this Wayne Grudem guy. And then you can help me say, well, that was the textbook. That was the textbook that he used. In any college or seminary, university class, a professor usually has a primary text. Many secondary texts. This is our primary text. All right, here we go. Y'all ready for the first doctrine? The doctrine of, ooh, son. We get to study the, the doctrine of all doctrines. We get to study, we begin with, The technical word is bibliology, the study of what? Help me. The study of the Bible. Okay? So that is our first doctrine, and we will look at the doctrine of Scripture. It's on pages 13 through 20 in your Christian Beliefs book. And in ST, whenever I say ST, y'all with me? ST is systematic theology. It's pages 47 through 138. And that's what I got to read in little bitty print, big pages. Loved it. Love, love reading this, and love being able to share these thoughts um, with you today. Uh, Grudem is unapologetically an inerrantist and believes in the infallibility of Scripture. Now I know he's got a PhD from I want to say Oxford, uh, Cambridge. Has a PhD from Cambridge. He has a BA from Harvard, and an MDiv and a Doctorate of Divinity from Westminster Seminary, and he is unapologetically. An inerrantist who believes that the word of God, as we have the scriptures, it's not just it does not just contain the word of God, it is the word of God. I had a liberal college professor in school and he got on the class one day and he, you know, I'm just a young 18 impressionable, and I'm just sitting there. But when he said it, I thought, that's not right. Something didn't resonate with me. He put a W on the chalkboard and said, Now the Bible is. The Word of God, and it is inerrant as long as we're talking about the big W, the big picture, okay, then it is God's Word inerrant. But it's not God's Word with a little W because there's eras, there's things about it you don't understand, you can't trust. And I was too young to, I was just like, but something's not right. You know, I was like 17, 18 years old, and and that guy now, he's um, working at Walgreens. You yeah. know, he's, uh, listen, when you abandon This book, you're going to abandon your faith. And you say, Brother Danny, there are things in the Bible that that I don't understand. Welcome to the human race. I mean, all of us, there are things that we can't fully grasp and understand, but we can trust uh, that it is God's Word. The main scripture I'll share with you this morning is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And it should come up here on the... There it is. Amen. All scripture, all the writings of scripture... Paul says, is given by inspiration of God. Some of you have heard this before. The Greek word for inspiration of God is theonoustos. Theos is God. Neustos is breathed or spirit. All Scripture is breathed by God. Think about that. Now, 51 times graphe is used in the New Testament, and it refers to the Old Testament writings. Okay? And so, Peter and John and Paul and Jesus... They all quoted the Old Testament. They referred to the Old Testament and believed that it was totally inspired of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Okay, that's pretty heady, isn't it? That's pretty cerebral. But look at verse 17. This is very practical. That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every uh, good work. God has revealed who he is. And what he wants us to know through, listen to this, the living word, which is Jesus Christ, and he's revealed to us all we need to know through the written word, which is uh, the Bible. Okay? Before we get into your, your book, and I'm going to cover the, the four characteristics of Scripture that he spells out in this, but before I do, though, I'm going to give you some some information that's, that's not in the book, but it's in the big uh, textbook, and it has to do with the canon, okay? And this is why I was got up before my alarm went off this morning because I was so excited to share with you about the canon or canonicity of Scripture. Why do we only have 66 books? There's 39 in the Old Testament, there's 27 in, in the New Who wrote those books? Who decided that those books would be canonical Scripture? Why don't we do like the Roman Catholics and put in the A, hey, help me, the the apocryphal, the, the hidden. 12 hidden books? Why is their Bibles that big? You Protestants, your Bibles is, is, is this big. I think those are great questions, and I want to try to provide some answers for you. Okay, I may go fast. I will go fast. Okay, and seven thirty comes, and you may ask me some questions. You may still say, well, "I still don't understand." I still listen. If you, if you really want it, I'll, I'll give you the the manuscripts. Okay, Kathy, I just committed us to something. If if you want the manuscript and it's all broken down, it's all it's all there, you can uh, you can have it, okay? You say, well, I get the manuscript, do I still need to come to class? <laughs> I don't know, you know, I hope you, hope you do, hope you do. What is the canon? It, it literally means the, the measurement, the read. The canon of Scripture is the list of all the books that belong in the Bible, okay? 39 old, 27 new, how did we get those, all right? Let's look at the Old Testament canon first. The Old Testament begins with Moses and the Pentateuch, the Torah, the law, the first five books, of the Old Testament it goes all the way through the, the prophets, the writings, and it ends in the fifth century in 435 BC with Malachi. And then from Malachi to John the Baptist is known as the silent years. There was no prophetic voice. Now I have to give a prize to somebody in the class if you can tell me what these 400 years of silence are referred to uh, by historians. No? I'll give you a hint. It starts with an I. Who said intertestamental? You get the prize, brother. All right. I don't know what that is, but <laughs> you will give it to you. It's called the intertestamental period. It makes sense, doesn't it? It's inter. It's in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's the 400 years of no prophetic voice. Okay. Malachi after Malachi, there is no real prophet until John the Baptist. Now I know you have the Maccabees, and, you know, and I know you have other things going on. But as far as this prophetic, thus saith the Lord, declarative word, it doesn't come till John the Baptist. Uh, these, these books, like Maccabees, and by the way, the 1st and 2nd Maccabees is pretty amazing. It's got a lot of good historical stuff in it. In fact, I don't know if any of y'all saw the Bible uh, series. Uh, it came out. I thought it was amazing, but I also thought it was pretty amazing that they would slip something from the intertestamental period in Maccabees and called it the Bible. And I thought, well, that's not in the Bible, but it—it's it, a lot of it is very much believed that it happened that way, but uh, Scripture doesn't. And you said, well, why don't we have Maccabees uh, in the in the Old Testament? Well, I'll tell you in just just a couple minutes. But um, well, here's one of the main reasons: Jesus and the apostles never quoted the apocrypha. Jesus and the apostles never quoted the Apocrypha. They quoted the Old Testament, the, the, the canonical books, the 39 uh, books. There was no Apocrypha included until 1546. Anybody remember this? In church history? What was this called? The Council of Trent. The Council of Trent, 1546, is when the Roman Catholics added the 12 books, the Apocrypha. And I say 12, that, that's debatable. Some of them may be combined, maybe a little longer or shorter. But in 1546, and that's interesting, you know, Martin Luther's born 1483, he nailed his 95 theses in 1517, so a lot's going on. John Calvin's Zwingli, the Anabaptists, there's a lot of reformation, a lot of things happening, and so the Roman Catholics, they codified and they added those 12 books. At the beginning it was not so. For 15, well, more like 1200 years, uh, they did not have that. So, I believe the Apocrypha should not be included in our Bibles, and here's why. Number one, they do not claim divine authority. It's more historical. It's more factual. There's not a claim. There's not a thus saith the Lord flavor or tenor in the apocryphal books. Number two, uh, they were not considered God's word by the Jews with whom these works originated. Jews didn't consider them as divine, divinely inspired. Number three, I gave you the third reason, and I think to me it's the best reason. Jesus and the New Testament authors did not consider them as a part of Scripture and did not quote them. Now, I know there's one text that's debatable. In Jude could possibly be a reference to the book of Enoch. I, I get that, possibly. But if you give me that, then I'll say 99.9% of the time those books are never quoted. But, man, does he quote David? Does he quote Moses? Does he quote Isaiah? When I say he, I'm talking about Jesus and the apostles. Number four, they contain teaching that's not consistent with what Scripture teaches. You say, and give me an example, all right? Number one, it talks to us about praying for the dead. We ought to have prayers for the dead. And that's nowhere found in Scripture, that we actually pray for people who are deceased, that are passed on to the next life. And there's a teaching of justification by faith and works. You see some of that doctrine in the apocryphal teachings. And not to... Open up a hornet's nest here, but that explains 1546 a little more for me. Okay, you can fill in the blank there. that helps me understand a little bit more, justification by works, faith and and works. Okay, the Old Testament canon. He has lots more information in there, and I, I would encourage you. You can read this. You can read David Dockery's excellent book on the on the the authority of Scripture. Um, there there are many great works out there that talk to you about the canon. I'm just going to give you just an overview. So let's go to the New Testament canon. Yes, the New Testament. All right, here the most important thing I want to share with y'all today, this is what I'm going to tell you, and and you've got to get your mind around this. Um, Every evangelical conservative scholar says the same thing, whether it's F.F. Bruce, whether it's Grudem, Dockery, Aiken, whoever you read, if they're an evangelical Christian scholar, this is what they say. The early church never set out to form or codify scripture, but what they did was simply accept what the early church deemed as scripture. That's a very important statement. Uh, the early church did not set out to say, "Okay, this is scripture and this is not scripture." Now, later on, there there was a time of finalizing the canon, and some of the books, the later um, some of the books. Uh, were a little more debated than others. But by and large, it wasn't. It was just, this, this is God's Word. But look, look at the authority. Look at the power. And, and there were some criterion by which they, they said those books especially should be uh, in the canon. And I'll give you those in, in just a moment. Um, here's a statement I want you to catch, too. Keep in mind that if God wrote the Bible then God can preserve the Bible. He put in there what we needed to have. It takes faith to believe in the Scriptures, and it takes faith to believe that what we have in the Bible is precisely what God wanted us to have. And so uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, we looked at 16 and 17. Let me show you 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. This is a very interesting uh, Scripture. It should come up on the screen. Consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation... Is also our beloved brother Paul, this is Peter speaking, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. Now, watch this. Also in his epistles, speaking in them of things in which are some things hard to understand, and to which we would respond, Amen, Peter. Paul says some things that are hard for us to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also, watch this, the rest of the scriptures guys that is a powerful statement that is saying that pauline authorship is divinely inspired but remember graphe always refers to the old testament and so peter in his mind he is saying that the writings of paul is as scriptural as the writings of moses now this is peter saying this about about paul okay first timothy five let me show you this seventeen and eighteen this scripture, again, the Gruden pointed this out to me. It's like I'd never seen this before. I'd never picked up on this. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. Amen. Uh, now, eight, verse 18. For the scripture says, are you all with me? The scripture says, he's going to quote Deuteronomy. Um, I think it's Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. It says, the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. And it's okay to say, and the scripture says, the laborer is worthy of his wages. That laborer worthy of his wages from Jesus is Luke 10, 7, and it's the identical Greek wording as in Luke 10:7. You say, why is that important? Showing you what scripture. What is scripture? What is not scripture? The scripture says, it quotes the Old Testament, and then it says, and the Scripture says. The laborer is worthy uh, of his his wages. The early church accepted the writings of the apostles as Scripture and close companions or associates of an apostle. Guys, that is a huge statement. Incredibly important statement. If the apostles didn't write it or a close associate of the apostles didn't write it, and if a half-brother of Jesus didn't write it, it didn't get in the canon. Okay, And that, that was just a big deal to the early church. But the apostle Paul wrote most of the New Testament, and his companion wrote almost, well, a good majority of the rest of the New Testament. Who was his close companion? Luke, who wrote Luke Acts. Would you put those together? It's about forty or fifty uh, chapters of Scripture. All right. Jude, James, half brothers of our Lord. Uh, what about uh, Mark? He's not an apostle, but he was a close associate. Of, in fact. Many believe that Mark's gospel is a compilation of the Apostle Peter's sermons, okay? So that's a pretty close proximity, right? You say, well, why is that important? Oh, why is that important? (laughs) Have you read the Extra Testament? Do you have a copy of the Extra Testament? And who is the author of that Extra Testament? Joseph Smith, a prophet of God. Here's the new, the new new Testament. This is what you need to read. And you say, that's unacceptable. I cannot accept that. Why? He, he's not a, he wasn't an apostle of Jesus Christ nor a close associate. But, 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 he, he had a vision. He had a vision from Moroni that the angels say, sorry, I can't, ac- I can't accept the canon is closed. And guys, we're on firm, awesome footing when we say the canon of Scripture uh, is closed. In AD 367, it's a very important date in church history. You may want to jot this down for the test. (laughs) Say, test? What What do you mean a test? There are no tests. Amen, no test. Uh, AD 367, my favorite early church father, a man by the name of Athanasius. Athanasius was the first to list all 27 books of canonical scripture in an Easter sermon that he preached. Later on, I'll talk to you more about Athanasius. He was the champion of... In, in the debate against Arian, the Council of Nicaea 325, he was the champion of orthodoxy of the absolute complete deity of the Son of God. He was a champion, Athanasius champion. All right, that's A.D. 367, the first one. You say, why did it take him so long? Well, it, it did take a little while because the last book, I believe the last book written in the New Testament is the book of Revelation around A.D. 100, Okay. The list, that he approved, the list that he wrote was accepted in the eastern part of the Mediterranean world, the eastern, uh, uh, eastern church. Now in AD 397, the Council of Carthage, this represented the churches west of the Mediterranean, and they also agreed with the same list. So it didn't take long for them to see that those are obviously the books that God wants us to have for us as the community, a community of faith. Okay, And Grudem writes this, and let me quote him. Thus, once the writings of the New Testament apostles and their authorized companions are completed, we have in written form the final record of everything that God wants us to know about the life, death, burial, resurrection of Christ and its meaning for the lives of believers for all time. End of quote. Uh, And I shared with the Mormon at my door a couple months ago, I said, Revelation 22, 18, and 19, John says, you don't add. You don't add to this. She said, but that's just the book of Revelation. No. This is the last book in canonical scripture. And you don't add uh, to to the scriptures. And um, So, anyhow, we had an interesting uh, discussion and debate. Now, today, you have all kinds of challenges to this book. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever seen a religious book? as challenged as this book. Oh, I wish I had time. I know time is, is... And I could share some things with you that are just... I mean, they're so affirming and so encouraging about the number of manuscripts that we have of this book. And the time between the extant manuscript, the original manuscript, and our copies is like 25 years. And, and, and people in antiquity, they, they don't question books that are hundreds of years apart from the original and the manuscript. But they do question this one. I mean, over and over uh, they questioned the, the veracity of it, the the truthfulness of it. And we all know why, because no other book makes claims on our lives quite quite like this one. But you you probably heard the Da Vinci Code, Dan Brown, a few years ago, the book came out. Well, two weeks ago, two weeks ago, sitting in my living room, and I walked in on a Sunday night about 8 or 9 o'clock, and Layton said, Dad, we are glad you're here. And I thought, what are y'all watching? And they had these nitwit theologians on there saying... The Bible, is it really what we need? I mean, don't, what about the pseudopigrapha? What about the apocrypha? What about the gospel of Thomas? Thomas, an apostle, wrote a gospel... The early church, the, the the fathers of the church, they were so strict, and and they would say, no, we do not. That was the tone, that was the tenor of it. Of course, I'm about to come out of my skin, you know. I'm I'm talking to the TV. I'm saying, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. And Ashley and Layton are like, and because I was like, it's so false. For example, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. I mean, hey, maybe Jesus' girlfriend. We don't know because the early church were so strict that they just squelched anything thinking outside the realm of their little Bible. Yes, they did. They did squelch that, and for reasons. And let me talk to you about the Gospel of Thomas. Thomas didn't write the Gospel of Thomas. It's a 2nd it's a century book. Thomas died in, in the 1st century, so he had to live to be 150, 200 years of age to write it. He didn't write it. And scholars readily recognize it, it's a pseudonym. He didn't write it. And the Gospel of Thomas contains such doctrines as these. Peter said, women are not worthy of life. Now, do you think that matches with what Scripture teaches? And the Gospel of Thomas quotes Jesus as saying, I will make Mary a male for only females who make themselves male are worthy to go to heaven. They they don't tell you that on TV. Dan Brown doesn't tell you that in the Da Vinci Code. That's why those books were never included. Because they said... Because that's the Gnostic writing. That is the Gnostics. You're familiar with Gnosticism. It's a it's a first century cult that believed in. Um, I mean, Docetists they were. They believed that the, the the physical is evil and the spiritual is true, and, and that uh, you have to have this hidden knowledge. So they so they're looking for some kind of hidden jewel, maybe something that nobody else knows, and they taught things like that. Well, obviously. The early church would say, that is heretical. We're not not embracing that. Thomas didn't write it after all. Keep in mind, one last time, the early church recognized the divinely authored characteristics of writings that already had such a quality. This is Grudem speaking. This is because the ultimate criterion of canonicity is divine authorship, not human or ecclesiastical approval. It's just common sense. This is what what God has ordained. He said, but that's still a lot of faith in that. And that's true. There's still an element of trust and faith that this Bible is, it is what it says it is, the inspired uh, writings of God. Okay, we're doing pretty good. And um, we're going to go into now your textbook. We're going to get to cover the four characteristics of Scripture. And um, we'll, we'll go as quickly as we can because time is getting, getting away from us. I don't know how many of y'all were here Thursday night last week in the prayer meeting in there how many of y'all were here for that oh my goodness brother Danny thought he had been raptured I got on the front row and just pr- I cried the whole night for one thing I just cried and just praised God and was so excited and I'm telling you an hour and a half went by and I, I got a little upset I was like what is it over yeah you because know, it was such a rich you know sweet time in, in the Lord I don't expect any of you to say this about 6:45 to 7:30, but I do hope it's it's a time that it's rich, that it's sweet, that you that you get your minds filled, and you also get your hearts filled, so you can make a difference with your hands. So characteristics of Scripture. Let's let's look at authority, clarity, necessity, and sufficiency. Why would Grudem start with the Bible? I mean, don't, why, why don't we start with Christology? Hey, why don't we start with Christology? Or why don't we start with the Trinity? Or why don't we start with the doctrine of sin? Well. We know nothing about Jesus, Trinity, sin, man, unless it comes from this book. I mean, think about that. Now, I know God. I know I believe in General Revelation. I'm going to talk to you about General Revelation. In fact, point one of my sermon Sunday is on the power of General Revelation because it is powerful. But you've got to have this book, and um, and we got to defend this. But we got to be able to give an apologetic, a defense for what we believe. In the scripture. So let's talk about its authority, then we'll talk about its clarity, necessity, and sufficiency. A, the authority of scripture. How do we know that the Bible is God's word? So we're gonna recapitulate a little bit, we're gonna summarize kind of what we went through. The Bible claims divine authorship. There are hundreds and hundreds of times that the Bible says, especially in the Old Testament, thus, I'm gonna go KJ on you, okay? Thus saith the Lord. It claims for itself divine uh, authorship. The New Testament writers considered the graphe, the Old Testament, to be scripture, to be divinely authored, like we looked at 2 Timothy three sixteen, And we looked at the word theonustos, which means God-breathed. Uh, listen to this verse. 2 Peter 1, says, and I would encourage you just jot the citation, just jot the notation down if you don't see it on the screen. 2 Peter 1, says, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke, as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Um, That's so important. The theory of this is called the plenary verbal theory. Have you ever heard this? Plenary is all. The plenary verbal uh, doctrine of inspiration goes like this. All the canonical writings of Scripture are God-breathed. They're given to us by God as he inspired the writers, taking their own temperament, taking their own personality, and communicating to them truth, and so they present that truth with their own background. That's why Luke's Greek is more polished than Peter's, because Luke was what? The doctor. He's a very educated doctor and a first rate uh, historian, okay? So we don't believe in dictation theory, all right? We don't believe in, and John was on a pipe and he just went into a trance and he just completely just, no. God spoke to them, and yet God used their personality and who they were in communicating. Uh, The message that he wanted us to to have. Okay. All right. The Bible claims divine authorship. Number one. Number two. We are convinced the Bible is God's word. As we as we read the Bible, as the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that what we are reading is indeed God's word. Now you say, well, my friends don't sense that. They're not Christians, and they're not going to sense that. You're going to read the Bible, and you don't know the author of the Bible. it's, it's not going to well up within you. It's not going to mean so much to you. But man, when you're a Christian and you read that book, come on, somebody help me. It's on. I mean, you're like, I've never seen that before. You know, and I, when I was up at, Old dark 30-something this morning. I'm reading the book of Proverbs with a cup of coffee going, Lord, help me, please wake up. But then I started getting into Scripture. And I was like, this is awesome. And this is God's word, and He is speaking to me. he's speaking to me this morning, and it's going to change my life through the rest of the day. And I get that from not reading Gruden or reading um, uh, McCullough or some of my favorite authors. I only get that when I'm reading the, the scriptures. 1 uh, Corinthians 2.14, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Number three, other evidence points to the Bible's authority. And I've taken this from Josh McDowell's Evidence That Demands a Verdict. I almost brought that book. That book weighs more than I do, too. That is a huge book on apologetics, defense. Listen to this. The Bible was written over a 1,400-year period, 40-plus authors, three languages on three continents, Asia, Europe, Africa. And the men wrote it with very different backgrounds. You have everything from a king to a tax collector. Fill in the blank. Who's he talking about? David to who? To Matthew. I mean, think about that. The Bible was written over 1,400 years, 40-plus authors, three continents. you got such diverse people as fishermen and tax collectors as you do kings and doctors. And yet, amazingly, they don't contradict themselves. And they have the same message from Genesis to Revelation. There's a scarlet thread of redemption that is embodied and personified in the Son of God. It's a miraculous book. I mean, it really is. And, and if you look, check the data and check the historicity of it and check your own internal witness, you'll, I think you'll agree. And then he says, However, these are still secondary to the fact that our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit that bears witness with our spirit that this is truly the Word of God. And that was written, by the way, in 1646 at the Westminster Confession of Faith. All right, let's talk about other evidence that points to biblical authority. The Bible is the Word of God has authority uh, in, in our lives, okay? Um, and when we submit ourselves to the authority of that Scripture, God blesses us and, and we are able to um, operate in a place of freedom and grace have y'all noticed, and i, I got to wrap up with this statement, though I'm only halfway through my notes today, but have y'all ever noticed the vast disconnect and, and distance between cultural Christianity today and biblical Christianity? I, I mean, it's, the chasm is becoming wider and wider and wider. And of course, we believe a lot of that is because we have abandoned the book as Southern Baptists. As Southern Baptists, the people of the book, most of our pastors have abandoned the book with the four ways to a prosperous and a happy life. That consists about 85 90% of the preaching today. There's a little text and then there's this huge uh, sermon on very very little bible knowledge. So it doesn't surprise me that at the domain just a few weeks ago, Ashley and Hannah are having coffee at Starbucks. True story. Okay, true story. Ashley, are you awake? Hey babe, I love you. I know you couldn't make it this morning cuz you were sleeping. But we're glad that you're watching us online here. We love you. Bless you. And She told me, she said, I'll just watch you. Later. I'm I'm, just gonna, I'm not going to get up that early. I said, that's okay. We love you. Our marriage is still good, still strong and healthy. So they go to uh, the domain, and they hear these two girls talking. I'm telling you the truth, guys. This is a true story. These two girls are talking. One girl is witnessing to the other girl. And Ashley and Hannah are going, this is awesome. She's kind of just, just listening just a little bit, you know. And, um, and then the one girl, she goes, well, wait a minute. You know, she, the, the Christian girl dropped her phone and cussed, just put out an expletive. And then the girl she was witnessing to said, wait a minute. You're trying to convince me that your God is the one true God and I need to believe on Jesus. And you curse and you just told me two nights ago you had sex with your boyfriend, right? She, says, she said, yeah, but th- that don't matter. You just got to ask Jesus in your heart. Okay, by the way, that's, that's not biblical either. You gotta give your everything to, to Jesus. So this man walks up to them and says, Excuse me, I, I overheard y'all's conversation, and he just started lovingly telling them about the real Jesus and the scriptures. Well, that fired up my daughter. She stands up and she goes walking over to them. And uh, she starts telling them about Christ, and, and because they had heard enough. They had heard, seen enough of this disconnect, this watered-down Christianity. And then this guy, he, he turns to my, my daughter, and he, she said, he's about 40 years old or so, and, and he said, where is your church? She said, I go to Great Hills. He said, that's a great church. That's a great church. And she goes, yes, yes, it is. Oh, man. You know what we're going to have to do? We have to be true to our word and stop. And I've got I'm on page five. And so next week, guess what? We're going to keep going with the Bible doctrine. All right, the doctrine of Scripture, and then we'll get into uh, the next one. I wrote it, but I can't remember what it is. Uh, what is? Ooh, what is God like? Oh my word! It is going it is awesome, awesome. All right, so seven thirty. Um uh, Some of y'all are going to need to head on out, but some questions that y'all may have or some comments. Uh, we've got a microphone here, I think, don't we, do. Terry? Or you can just re the question, either one. All right, if you can shout it out loud. Yes, sir, Herb? i got a question. Okay. According to what you said about the book, we're talking about systems here, right? hmm So what is the boundaries of the system? The Old Testament and New Testament? Mm-hmm. Or all? What is the the bound ba- yes yeah that's um the the he's asking i think i understand the the question what is the boundaries uh, what when you define a system, you have to the boundaries. yeah yeah right um, yeah that's the um, i think i understand your question about the the system of the old testament and the new testament the god's people in the old testament and recognizing that you know God, those are God's people, the chosen people, Israel, and things that are related to them, and their their writings. That's a system that is the Old Testament scripture, and then the New Testament, which is fascinating to me, is 400 years uh, later because there's not that authoritative, "Thus saith the Lord" until John the Baptist comes comes on the scene. So, all right, thank you, Herb. Somebody else? Question? Yes, sir, Doctor. Careful when you're handing me a microphone. Yeah. Uh so you're talking about the early church mm-hmm. and how it accepts writings from the apostles, mm-hmm. the close associates, the half brother Jesus. Yeah. What about the book of of Hebrews? I have that in my notes. I didn't mention the book of Hebrews. Most most people believe either Paul or Luke wrote the book of Hebrews. There's a strong argument for Apollos writing the, the book of Hebrews. <laughs> Any of, three, any of those three would, would be sufficient because Apollos is a close associate to Paul, as is Luke. Of course, uh, I still lean toward more to Pauline, but there's a new book just got, came out by Dr. David Allen, and I think uh, his argument is, is either for Luke or for Apollos. But thank you because we don't know. who. That's why people, when pe- people refer to Hebrews, they'll say, and the author of the book of Hebrews says, because we, we don't know. And I read a little bit more about that, Ryan, and it said... As the early church read that, they said it absolutely is divinely inspired because of of the nature of it and the teachings of it about the supremacy and the high priesthood of of Christ. Book of Hebrews, good one. Yes, sir, in the back, I think. You mentioned the gospel of Thomas and... Uh, no, because 2 Peter's written about AD 64, 65, the Gospel of Thomas comes in 150. So no, it couldn't be couldn't be that. What Peter's talking about is a group of false teachers, maybe not authors, but false teachers within the actual church. The best way I can describe that, Adam, would be at Great Hills some Bible Life teachers started teaching that, okay, and you know, and then his Brother Danny says, no, no, that's wrong, you, you can't teach these antinomian laws that it doesn't matter how you live just, just as long as you believe in Jesus. Just ask Jesus in your heart. I'm telling you guys, that is as old as the New Testament. Disassociate your behavior from your beliefs and that is just not biblical genuine um, New Testament Christianity. Good, good questions. How about any, any more? I'm not the Bible answer man, but I'll try to answer your, <laughs> your question the best best I can. Uh, yes, uh, on the uh, Council of Carthage, since we use that mm-hmm. as a uh, validation for the uh, sixty six books and the closing of the canon of Scripture, uh, who were the uh, the people involved with that and and uh, uh, you know who how can we trust them who were they that's let, let me check I know there's seven major um, Christological councils from ID, uh, Nicaea 325 to Second Nicaea 700, and in between, or Chalcedon, and some that I actually had to regurgitate this on a test in seminary, but I have forgotten. But I can find out. I can find out who the key players were because every council had key Orthodox. Uh, play, the Council of Ephesus, for example, Dan Brown says, "Oh, at the Council of Ephesus, there was this great debate." About the deity of Christ, and we don't really know, but well, yes, we, there was a vote. 478 to four, to two. And there, well, there's no debate. 478 to two affirmed the deity of Christ. And uh, when I was in Ephesus, I had a guy pointed out, he said, "You know that's where the church had the, the council. And too bad they couldn't figure out who Jesus was because they couldn't understand. And that's when my hand went up, and that's when I opened my mouth. I said, that is not true. I said, they voted, and they fully, 99% affirmed in the deity of, of Christ. And so but Council of Carthage, I should know that, but I'll, I'll, I'll check that. I love, I love questions like that, by the way. It makes my days real long. So, yes, ma'am. If you were going to um, tell us this theologian is good or that theologian mm-hmm. is good, I have no idea who's who. I wonder mm-hmm. if we could have a list possibly of, of i mean if I wanted to research more yeah and, possibly and i can um, you can always ask me if you come across and i can and I can tell you my my opinion on, on it and, uh, and and it may you know just be my my opinion on it but i uh, uh, like when I'm reading Grudem and he quotes somebody and I'm like I've heard that name before and it's usually a negative and it is it was a negative thing but then he quotes some of these other guys it's uh, that's awesome so but that's a good question and I'll be happy to if you know help help you with that as best best I can yes ma'am Misha don't y'all love the uh, Herb and Misha these are brand new believers baptized them about a year ago I really don't think they've missed a Sunday. I, I don't. And let me tell you something else. I didn't say Sunday. They never, ever missed a Sunday to tell me how much they love me. That's and I tell you, I just want to clone that's them. That's true. You know, we and just say, you. bless you. I mean, I'm serious. They come up to me and tell me every Sunday how much we just love you, Pastor Danny. And, and I'm just said, I just love you too. And I just appreciate you very much. And uh, kind of like Felix Daly back there, have the gift of encouragement, gift of blessing. Yes, ma'am. I almost forgot what I was (laughs) going (laughs) to ask. Could could you define or give a little synopsis of what the councils were and who called them and what their purpose? Yeah, you're talking about the Christological councils, the the seven. This is a great question, and a couple people have asked about it, and I actually thought for a minute to actually present that material because it is so incredibly important. It was political as well as religious. It would become such a, uh, uh, let me give you the first one, Nicaea. Arius and Athanasius were the big theologians. And it depended on which emperor or which ruler was in favor. Like, if he was against uh, Athanasius, uh, Arius would be banned, they would kick him out of the country. And then the next ruler would come in and say, well, I believe Arius was right, that Jesus wasn't fully divine. He was absolutely subordinate, different nature of the father. And then Athanasius would be exiled. It's, it's really odd. It's an odd thing. But each one of those councils, they, uh, uh, Chalcedon, Ephesus, Nicaea, it, it was political in nature. It was religious in nature. But when you read those and you find out, well, what was it they were debating, it's the same thing's same things we debate today. Same same issues, same doctrines. The main one, the big one, was Christology. Almost every one of them had to do with Christology. Was Jesus Christ the eternal Son of God come in the flesh? And some people said, absolutely not. He was not. He was a created being. Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons. Okay, that's that's nothing new. Okay, so the early church debated that. They thought that through, and they come out overwhelmingly. The Nicene Creed. Thursday night, y'all were here. We we quoted the Nicene Creed, and that's probably one of the reasons I was crying. I was like, "That's so true." I said that because it's like He is the eternal Son of God, and it was. Those were very passionate because there were people who were, you know, uh, d- debating the, the nature of the deity of of Christ. So the seven Christological councils. I have to look some more of that. Yes, sir. My Indian brother, how are you? Good. So we, we have always heard uh, in the original manuscript or initially there were no chapters or verses or anything. Everything was a continuous text. Yes. So at what point of time that it was divided into books, or verses, chapters, things like that? Yeah, that's a, that, that's a good question. I don't know the, uh, the answer except I'm thinking the Masoretes had something to do with that in the Old Testament as far as breaking it down in, in book, chapter, and verse. Because the original autographs, Uh, had they didn't have that distinction you know like hebrews was just the book of hebrews and so somewhere along the line people codified it and and broke it you know broke it up so that's a that's a good question i don't i don't know some of my new testament um scholarly friends they 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 would know the answer to that i want to say something Let me, let me say this real quick, when you talk about the inerrancy of scripture ninety-nine percent of what we have there there's no there's no error there are a couple of places where it clearly there's been some textual deviation and you can see this in samuel and chronicles because they talk about the same thing in one statement it says there were five hundred men for example and then later on it says it was eight hundred men and so obviously there was a copyist era there and but that's the only kind of thing you find with that is those disputes and, uh, and Dr. Patterson, Paige Patterson helped me with that and broke that down for me very clearly and showed me that all from memory one days we were driving to a place that he was preaching and he said let me give you the five issues about that and I was like I'm <laughs> writing them down you know and he's driving over there and uh... interesting okay we got three minutes can y'all tell i want to be real sensitive to your time i really want to start at 645 and I really want to close at seven forty five because I want you to I want to honor your time and and, and I wanna I wanna thank you. I appreciate you you coming. Yes, sir. Herb. Sorry, I got another question. Yes sir. Even the book referred to bounded rationality when it said that every person talks about face and the background that they have. Yeah. So a fisherman talks like a fisherman. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. I mean, that's somebody said, "You want to see what God looks like? Look at look at Jesus. I mean, there he is, come, come in 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 the flesh and um, the incarnate God." This, this has precipitated some wonderful discussions in my home about the Trinity. We have had, it's been so fun. I can't, I honestly cannot wait to talk about the Trinity. I mean, because there's so much there, and we just don't talk about it most of the time because it, 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 is, it is hard to understand, but there are some things that we genuinely can understand. So we've got time for one more question, then we are on our way. Yes, sir. I just want to make a comment. The Old Testament weren't parts of it actually uh, where God told Moses and Moses wrote it down. Mm-hmm. And then um, I, forgot my, I forgot my second point. It's early. But, and I didn't want to use the word dictated, but mm-hmm. weren't parts of it dictated. Yeah. And then some of the uh, apostles, didn't the Lord, or excuse me, the, the prophets, didn't the Lord say to my very words, you take these yes. words yes. to them. Yeah, absolutely. That that is a good point because some of it, the dictation theory actually has some validity to it because it would be whole excerpts of. And I'm in my quiet time right now. I'm reading uh, the Book of Isaiah, and it's obvious that God is just telling him, write this just like this. There is no Isaiah flavor to it. It's just God telling him, you know, to do that. And I, I really didn't use a good illustration when I said John because you could say the same thing for a lot of the Apocalypse because. Jesus said, write these things, and it was almost dictated you know, to him. But a lot of times, Scripture is not dictated. It's just like Luke and, and Paul. You see their temperament. You see who, who they are, but that's a, good, that's a good distinction. Okay, 745, we didn't pray. Y'all, I always started class with prayer, and I always take prayer requests, but I didn't do that for y'all. I'm, I'm sorry. But I will pray for you uh, and ask God to, to bless you as you go out today. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the great doctrines of the faith. Thank you, Lord. What a great way to start our day, to be with your people and to be studying your word. Thank you, Lord, for these dear friends um, across the waters and across the, the states here that have watched us and have participated with us. Pray that you'd bless them, bless their walk with you. And Lord, again, please, please help us, God, to know, to do But most of all, God, to be, to be the kind of people you want us to be, where we just love on people, share the truth with people, not speak the truth arrogantly, but speak the truth, Lord, with humility and with meekness and love as many people as we can to the kingdom. For this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. See you next time.